Welcome back to Blazing Trails. I'm Michael Rebo from Salesforce Studios. And today we're featuring a great conversation with Jessica Leahy, New York Times bestselling author, speaker, and parenting expert. She's the creator of the award-winning animated series, The Stinky and Dirty Show. And Jessica has some great tips on how to help your child gain confidence and become more independent. The conversation originally aired on our sister podcast, Be Well Together. It's a weekly podcast that features luminary speakers and well-being experts to provide insights and tips related to all aspects of mental, physical, and social well-being. And Jessica spoke with Stephanie Adams, Director of Nonprofit Success and Global Communications Chair for Parent Force here at Salesforce. And I am lucky to have Stephanie here today to talk about Jessica and Parent Force. Welcome to the show, Stephanie. Hi, Michael. So nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I loved this conversation and it's uh, quite applicable for me. I have tween age twins and I am really entering this period of uh, the unknown and uh, the known unknown. So I'm excited to learn a little bit about what we're going to uh, hear from Jessica. But before we get into that, I wanted just to hear a little bit about Parent Force and what that's all about here at Salesforce. Yeah. So Parent Force is an affinity group. Uh, we are global. We're all around the world at Salesforce. And our mission is to help parents find community and build community uh, while at work, right? You never stop being a parent at work or at home. So uh, we have a global mission and we've been really energized this past year in sharing that support as well. Mm-hmm. Well, it's such a huge topic. And I mean, some of the things you mentioned, you know, college and so many of these things are just really overwhelming for parents. And uh, you know, as we know, there's no manual for it. So maybe give me a highlight from from what we're going to hear uh, th- that stood out for you. I think the notion that it's not too late to start this, right? Mm-hmm. So Jessica talked about she had some conversations with her kids in middle school or high school about how they need to reset their parenting. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes you think, I've gone, I've done it this way for so long. I can't, I can't change course, right? But you can if you're really intentional and mindful. And I think about that in terms of how I'm parenting my kids and and how you can you can shift and you can admit your mistakes and and do it a better way and try something new. And hopefully it really helps your kids and your family in the long term. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I really remember as a teenager having a kind of turning point moment with my mom. You know, there'd been a bunch of conflict and then where we had this one conversation that I really felt heard and like a person and a partnership in this relationship. And that was, that really it made a huge impact. Just this one conversation at an intense time. And I want to circle back on Parent Forts a little bit. And, yeah. and if you, if you know some of the, the history, I, I'm curious if, if other companies are thinking about setting mm-hmm. something like this up. Tell me about the origin story of it a little bit. And then I'd also, I'm really curious about how it operates within the company. What are the roles? How, you know, how yeah. do you keep it going? So Parent Force Bay Area folks came together and, you know, does anybody have a hot tip on a nanny or I'm selling a stroller? Kind of, that was the early genesis of it. But with COVID, we see this global movement and this need to provide support. I keep using that word, but it's just kind of the word we all think about community um, and help parents feel like, you know, Salesforce um, is listening and we can help folks go out on parental leave, come back from parental leave. And so we have a great vision and great plans for things to come. So more in the next year or two as well. How does Parent Force impact decisions that are made by the company? It's to provide a voice of the people. It's kind of, you know, the voice of the employees. So we have a, a public 
internal Slack channel, right? So the fact that anybody at Salesforce, all 80,000 employees can jump in and see what are employees talking about? What are the themes? What's coming up? How can we share out the themes that we're seeing uh, within our channel, right? So we have an excellent benefit of six months of leave, of parental leave, at least in Amer, uh, a longer in other parts of the world. Um, so how do folks feel supported in going on leave or going out or coming back from leave, right? So we are talking to the benefits team um, under employee success. So it is a work in progress, I would say right now. Well, great. I've enjoyed talking so much today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Michael. Thanks so much. Now, let's get into your conversation with Jessica Leahy, best-selling author, speaker, and parenting expert. She's the creator of the award-winning animated series, The Stinky and Dirty Show. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Be Well Together. My name is Stephanie Adams. Here at Salesforce, I'm a director of customer success for the nonprofit team. I'm also the global communications chair for ParentForce. ParentForce is an affinity group focused on creating community and driving equity for our Salesforce employees through all phases of their parenting journey. Something all parents face in their parenting journey is watching our kids struggle. How do we help kids build resiliency so they can handle life setbacks? Well, today we have some expert advice. Our special guest is someone who can guide us on how to let go, let our kids experience failures, learn from those failures, and become autonomous and successful. It is my great pleasure to introduce parenting coach and expert Jessica Leahy. Jessica is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. Over the past 20 years, Jessica has taught every grade from six through 12 in both private and public schools. She is a writer on education, parenting, and child welfare with frequent contributions to the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and she had her own column with the New York Times. For parents of younger kids, she also created the educational curriculum for the Amazon Kids award-winning show, Stinky and Dirty, and it was a big hit in our house too. As a big fan of your work and as a mom of two boys, I am delighted to be here today. Thank you for joining us on Be Well Together. Welcome, Jessica. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. And Stinky and Dirty is quite popular in my house too. And I have bigger kids and even they think Stinky and Dirty are kind of cool. Plus the title makes me giggle every time I hear it. Stinky and Dirty just makes me laugh. I wanted to make sure that everyone understands sort of what I do and who I am and why I'm here. So I um, was a teacher for 20 years. I taught every grade from six to 12. My heart though lies in middle school. I love middle school so much. Um, I've also taught high school, but there's something really magical about that, that transitional time. And maybe it's just because a lot of people um, underestimate the magic of that time that I just tend to love them so much. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that I also have two children of my own and they have sort of grown up through the era that I was writing Gift of Failure. Um, I got sober and have about eight years of sobriety and wrote The Addiction Inoculation, my book about preventing substance use in kids through all of that. So I came at this very much from at first as a teacher and then as a parent. And what happened for me was um, I was teaching middle school and increasingly I was seeing among my students that they were 
they weren't as excited about learning. Not only were they not as excited about learning just the usual tricks, uh, tricks that I would use, you know, extra credit points and stuff like that to get them motivated. That wasn't working as well. And then one of my students admitted to me that um, learning had become beside the point for her, that for her, it was all about the grades and points and scores. And at the same time, I was also seeing, you know, those incredible learning moments that I get to be a part of in middle school when a kid has, you know, forgotten his homework for a whole bunch of days. And then I'm there to sort of help him come up with a strategy for the next day and say things like, you know, okay, sweetie, so how is tomorrow going to be different from yesterday? What are you going to do tomorrow that you didn't do today? Or what are you going to not do tomorrow that you did today? And, you know, you get to this place where they're just about to have like a learning epiphany. And then the parent would run through the door with the homework that had been forgotten. And, the kid would sort of look at me like, well, there's no point for me to come up with a strategy, right? I, I have one and this is gonna continue working. So I was getting really um, upset with the parents of my students. And just when I was at peak upset with the parents of my students, which is a bad thing because all the research, super clear, the better the homeschool relationship, the better kids learn. Just as I was really upset with the uh, parents of my students, I realized that um, I was doing the same thing to my own kids. I had at the time, a nine-year-old boy who um, didn't know how to tie his own shoes. And that, that was my fault. I did that to him. I had rendered him helpless. And not only that, I had rendered him ashamed of himself and his self-esteem was plummeting. He was just feeling humiliated by the fact that he couldn't do some of the things that his friends could do. And I had taken that from him. So as upset as I wanted to be with the parents of my students, I couldn't. So now this is like super important for me to figure out how this whole overparenting thing works with motivation and learning, not just for my students, but for my own kid. And um, yeah, I'm happy to say he's now 18 and he can tie his own shoes. So woohoo, going off to college, being able to tie his shoes. It is a low, low bar, but anyway, that one we made. <laughs> Thanks so much, Jessica, for that background. I think as parents, we all can empathize and resonate all of those stories. So thank you for that. Um, one question that seems to come up is, in your, in your book, you talk a lot about directive parenting, right? Mm -hmm. And it seems to be getting worse. And it, how did we get here? How did we get to a place where, the, where parents seem to be directing everything in their kids' lives? Are the stakes that much higher? And why do, we, why do you think parents feel like they have to do this so that their kids don't misstep? Yeah, it's a confluence of a whole bunch of different things. I mean, partially it's that we're having um, fewer kids, we're having them older, we're having them after either being out in the workforce for a while or being in education for longer. And so we tend to bring those tools, and I did it, spreadsheets and things like that. We bring that to our parenting toolkit and suddenly we're, you know, input and output and like measuring, you know, everything. And then on top of that, we have a 24-7 media that really operates based on um, hitting you in the emotions. They, what uh, the media wants us to do is to share stories, right? To tell other people about this thing we heard or forward it, or, you know, because that's how advertising works. We wanna click on that thing and forward it to someone else. And we know for a fact that the way to get people to do that is through emotions. And so one of the way we stir up emotions in parents is to frighten us a little bit. Tell us it's impossible to get into college. Tell us that the, SAT is changing again and the scores are going up. And by the way, have you looked at US News and World Report lately? You should see just, you know, that school is so much harder to get into. And by the way, I found out that I, 
I could never get into the college that I want my kid to get into now, all of these things. And on top of that, we're getting all kinds of messages about, you know, by the way, if you let your kid play outside in the yard, there's someone just waiting there on the corner to steal them and sell them into sex trafficking. So there's this, um, the media is really feeding a real frenzy around um, fear that our children won't succeed. Economically, we're at a place where for the first time in a long, long time, um, we can't expect our kids to do better than we did uh, financially. That's frightening. And again, there's the whole, oh, you'll never get into college unless you're the student, athlete, musician, perfection, you know, all of that sort of stuff. So it's a confluence of all of those things that just sort of keep us on this, you know, keep our cortisol pumping in our body and keep us on high alert that we need to protect at all costs and that everything has to be perfect all the time or our kids will never ever be succeed or be happy, which really is in the end, no matter what our actions are, our motives are genuinely good. We just want our kids to be happy and loved and have successful lives. And that yeah. feels imperiled. Absolutely. So what do you say to parents who think, well, if I let them fail once, they'll just keep failing. It's a slippery slope and then they'll give up and they won't be motivated to do anything. How do you how do you talk to or think about parents who are facing that question in their lives? Yeah, so one of the things to remember is that there's a big difference between confidence and competence. And we as parents are super good at, you know, instilling that optimistic confidence, like you're going to do great. You're so perfect. You're so talented. You're so wonderful. But that confidence, that's not very durable. It's easily punctured. It's easily deflated. Um, and it, it, we also know, for example, that the self-esteem on, uh, excuse me, the research on, on self-esteem reports the same thing, that we can't build up a kid's self-esteem just by telling them over and over again how wonderful they are. What they need is to feel competent. And competence is confidence based on actual experience, on gathering skills, on gathering, you know, that sort of what's called a feeling of self-efficacy, that if I make a decision and I do something, that I can figure it out on my own and that I can gain mastery. And by the way, you know, this talk is not about substance use disorder, but self-efficacy and a sense of competence are one of the most protective factors we have against kids turning to substances in order to feel like they are enough. So the more competent, more self-efficacy they feel they have, the better. And so tricking ourselves into thinking that it'll just be better if we help them with each step along the way so that they can just sort of get there no matter how they get there, um, that's not feeding their competence and self-efficacy. It's having yeah. the opposite effect, unfortunately. So interesting. Um, you know, thinking about motivation and we have, mm -hmm lots of parents who have kids who are getting by with doing the bare minimum coasting, if you will. Right. And right, then right. parents try and come in. I read this in your book, the story about the, the kid with a spelling test who <laughs> could never get the spelling test right. And so a reward system is put in place right. to try and increase motivation. Does that work? What does over rewarding look like? And, and what's a better way to motivate kids? And so those rewards, extrinsic motivators, they can be things like grades, points, scores, money for grades, uh, stuff in exchange for grades, praise, love in exchange for grades. And by the way, you know, when I ask kids, do you, you know, do you think that your parents love you more when you get high grades and less when you get low grades? 80% of middle schoolers say yes, and 90% of high schoolers say yes. So that's called love in exchange for, perform for performance, and it's a really damaging thing to do to kids. And then there's negative controls as well, like... Um, you know, punish threats of punishment for low grades, surveillance, checking on the portal all the time, tracking them on their phones, that kind of thing. All of those do not boost motivation for task 
that take long-term focus and or creativity. In fact, they do the exact opposite. This is not my research. This is 50 years of really good research for multiple different people, multiple institutions. Um, go read Edward DC's Why We Do What We Do, The Science of Self-Motivation. Go read some Dan Pink. Um, all of that research shows that extrinsic motivators do not motivate for the long-term. They undermine motivation for the long-term and they undermine creativity. So what we want from kids is to somehow boost their intrinsic motivation. And, um, and that just doesn't happen with you know, a carrot and a stick or, you know, the, the, or the money for grades. Uh, and that, you know, that's happening a lot. Generally speaking, when I, I, I travel and talk to kids, about 20% of them are getting paid for their grades and about 25 to 30% are getting stuff in exchange for grades and the grades themselves. Those are extrinsic motivators too. So figuring out how to motivate without, without leaning on those quite as much. I'm not saying we can't use them, just can't lean on them quite as much as we tend to. You know, so much of parenting is figuring out and looking back at your own childhood and how you're parented and, and seeing how you want to do it going forward and full transparency. I got paid for grades. And you know, what do I want to do with my kids is a really important question that we talk about in our household mm -hmm. and how do we find that motivation too. Um, so yeah. when, when kids show up with disappointment or frustration, that's hard for parents to watch, right? You want to take that all yeah. away. So of course. Is, it, is it good for kids to be frustrated or disappointed? And, and how do you know when it's, it's hit a tipping point, it's, it's now hurting, it's not helping anymore? Yeah, there's a wonderful term used to describe a particular learning tool, um, and it's called desirable difficulties. Notice mm -hmm. I didn't say insurmountable difficulties. I said desirable difficulties. And uh, the research is really interesting, especially around this sort of ability to feel frustrated, that sort of emotional wherewithal, the ability to sort of okay, take a breath, redirect, come at this another way, skip to the next problem and come back to the one you're stuck on. That ability to feel frustrated and not, as my kid did, fall apart with the shoe tying, right? You know, the first time he went to tie his shoes, he went um, he went completely boneless and he's like, I can't, I can't, I'm never going to be able to tie my shoes. I'm, and he, I mean, and the worst, I'm so stupid. I'm never going to be able to do it. And that's the, you know, I can't bear that. My heart breaks. It's for my students and for my kids, both of them. So I want to take that away. But think about this. If I took that away from my students, that, that feeling of frustration, that feeling of wrestling with something a little bit, I would be a terrible teacher because my job is not to give them the directions that they just memorize the directions in order to translate a Latin sentence or find out what the theme of the book is or to solve the quadratic formula. It's to be there with them as a sounding board, to redirect them, to sort of give them ways to find out on their own, figure out on their own what the answer is. The really key thing here with desirable difficulties is that if a kid can't stand feeling frustrated and gives up immediately, they're not gonna be able to persevere through something that is a has desirable difficulties. And desirable difficulties are one of the most powerful teaching tools I have. In fact, it causes the brain to say, no, 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 don't put that in short-term memory. This is too important. This is a little more challenging. Encode that and put it in long-term memory. So kids who are able to stick with the task that is slightly frustrating for them, forces them to maybe take something from one domain and put it in another or apply to different domains to figure something out. Those kids will not only understand the information more, 
better in the short term, they'll understand it more durably over time. So if I were to quiz all my students in like 10 years over something I taught in my classroom, it's the kids who really encoded that information who were able to stick with the desirable difficulties. So you can see there's a big difference between a kid who can be frustrated and stick with it and one who can't. The one who can get frustrated just learns more in a classroom that's using something like desirable difficulties, formative assessments, all of these teaching tools that we know work really well. Yeah. And so much of that is on the parent, the grown up and the child's life to step back. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that's hard. And you don't. Yeah. Well, the thing is, it's not about like what's so fascinating is for my students that have had issues being able to be frustrated because they've someone has always been there right at the moment they're frustrated or sometimes even before, you know, a parent anticipates a kid's going to get frustrated and mm -hmm. they, they give them the next direction. Um, for those kids, you know, I've done some stuff with the parents of my students where I say, look, instead of just like rushing to your kid's side or sitting right with them when they do their homework, find something for your for you to do. You know, you don't have to abandon them. You can still be in their eyesight, but, you know, start chopping some peppers or making dinner, whatever that thing is, so that when they say, I need help, you can say, hang on, you know what? I'm doing something right now, but why don't you go read the instructions again? Or why don't you look at the next problem and come back to this one? Or why don't you figure out what you did with the next, the last problem and see if you can apply that to this one? And it, it allows them to sort of exercise that that muscle that they need in order to feel like they can rely on themselves they don't have to freak out that they have a sense of competency and they they sort of gain start gaining resources for how they can sort of just chill take a breath redirect and push forward and and persevere right and so the goal with that is to watch your kids grow right and gain more autonomy yeah. and yeah. so how do you think about that as a parent to kind mm -hmm. of evaluate how much autonomy they have and how it evolves over time, how should limits or mm -hmm. rules be put in place too? Well, and as a bridge between the last question and this one, one of the things I think it's really important to do is to notice when your kids are sticking with something longer than they used to, or notice some long-term, and this is hard for me too. I was talking with a friend of mine while we were walking in the woods and I said, oh my gosh, my kid is regressing. Suddenly he doesn't know how to do laundry anymore. And I know he knows how to do laundry. And she said, stop take a breath, think about where he was a year ago, six months ago, so that when you see that sort of progress and you take a deep, deep breath, think about it for a minute, show, praise them for the things that you're appreciating in them. Like, sweetie, you know what? You would have just freaked out and given up over that math assignment. And you stuck with that for so much longer than you used to be able to. And I am so proud of you for that. Because the message that has been coming across in the in the media about it's Carol Dweck's message, very oversimplified, which is never tell them they're smart, only praise them for effort. That's dumb. That's not what Carol Dweck said. It's a process of helping your kids see that they can rely on themselves and that they are making progress in that in that direction. So helping a kid say, and when they screw up, here's how you can handle that. You say, okay, sweetie, well, this thing happened or you got this grade. Interesting. So what went well that you're going to hold on to and do again next time? And what didn't work so well? What are you going to leave behind? And actually the stinky and dirty show posters right behind me. And that entire show is based on two sort of preschool level thinkers having to complete a task. And the first time they try to do it, you know, one part kind of works and another part is just silly and it doesn't work. It was a good try though. They don't get mad at each other. They don't deny that they made a mistake. They say, huh, 
That part didn't seem to work, but this did. So let's take this and let's try something else. And that approach of how are we gonna do differently next time? How are we gonna repeat for next time? If it went well, what are we gonna leave behind? What are we gonna take with us? That emphasis on process over product um, helps kids be less anxious about assignments, helps them rely on themselves, helps them build their fortitude and resilience, and helps, and helps them believe us when we say, sweetie, it's okay. What I care about is that you learned from this. Because I hate to tell you this, because most kids don't believe us right now when we say that, because they know that to us, it's all about the grades or the points or the scores. So they need to believe us a little bit more when we say what we really care about is the process of becoming, of learning, of growing. And that's how we do that with process over product. Thank you for that. That's super helpful. When switching gears a bit, going from the stinky and dirty set to older kids, um, the emotions are so much higher, right? Yeah. And many parents have a hard time seeing their teenager their college-age student in pain, being left yeah. out of social groups, bullying, cliques, breakups. What do you say to parents who want to show up for their kids and just make it all better and take away all their pain? How do you yeah. help yeah. parents show up for their kids better too? Yeah, I mean, I would love to be able to do that both for my kids and for my students. I would love to be able to say, oh, sweetie, this, you know, Here's how you'll never, ever, you know, get hurt in a relationship ever again. But I can't do that for them. You know, I tell them, I tell my kids stories, you know, my first love was a relationship that wasn't particularly healthy for me, but I am the person I am today because of that relationship. So we talk about that. We talk about, you know, here's what I learned here and here's how I'm not going to bring it forward with me. But in terms of like relationships, what's so fascinating is that the nature of especially friendships morphs over time. It evolves over time. You know, when kids are really little, they're friends with the people that they have proximity to. They're friends with like their mom's friends, kids, because they're there. And then as middle school um, happens, kids start to develop friendships based on identities they want to try on or people they admire and they want to understand how that person works or even I don't know if I want to be that rebellious kind of kid. I'm going to become friends with that rebellious kid and see what that's all about and figure out if that's something I want or not. So in a way, it's reassuring when they make friends with lots of different people. And one thing to understand about middle school friendships, especially, is that they tend to be pretty transitory. Most middle school relationships um, have a, a peak intensity and then tend to fall off. And so it's actually pretty rare to hold on to the relationships that you make, um, really close relationships that you make during middle school. And it's important to understand that both as parents, so we don't get as freaked out by, oh, I don't know about that friend. That friend is not a great, a great not a great influence. Or um, if our kid is suddenly coming home and parroting something you know isn't their opinion, it's someone else's. Um, so understanding that a lot of these, um, the ebb and flow of relationships is about finding their identity. And there's a lot of missteps involved in that. There, boy, I'm really glad I'm not the person I was when I was 13 or 15 or 17 or 20. And a lot of that is due to the relationships that came and went out of my life. So the best thing we can do is model really good relationships, talk about why we're friends with the people we're friends with, what positive attributes they add to our life, how they're supportive, and think about our own relationships. If we're modeling toxic relationships for them, maybe it's time for us to let some of our relationships go in the, in the pursuit of good modeling for our children. Yeah, I love that. I love the idea of owning, owning your history, owning your past, talking about your failures, right? Talking yeah. about 
why friendships matter to you now and how you got there too. Thank you. Yeah. Um, one thing, I, you know, especially in the last couple of years, we've been living in a culture of fear, right? And mm-hmm. so parents are just afraid and they're afraid that they're going <laughs> yeah. to, you know, let their yeah. kids, let themselves down, let their kids down. They're not inspiring them. Um, how do you talk to parents now, especially 2022, to let go of that fear so that their mm-hmm. kid knows that they can live a happy and fulfilled life and fear is not the best way to get there too, right? Yeah, I think a lot of the fear, it's really interesting, the fear that I'm seeing in parents because the kids the kids feel it, the kids are hearing it. And in fact, when I go and speak at schools, one of the things I do is I give kids my email address and I say, look, I'm gonna be speaking to your parents this evening. And so if there's anything you want me to tell your parents, now's the time, email me. And I'm telling you, if you wanna get some really fun emails, um, give your email address to about a thousand middle school students. So I get all these emails and by far the biggest comment that I get that they want me to convey to their parents is some iteration of, I am not my brother. I am not my sister. I'm not you when you were my age. I am not your do-over. And that is really tough because there are so many things I wish I'd done differently, a different college I maybe should have applied to that I didn't know about, or a different sport I should have played. I really wish I'd taken up crew when I first went off to college or whatever. That's about me. That's not about them. And so when the kids are saying, you know, I don't want you to think of me as this other person. What they're really saying is, I don't feel like you see me. I don't feel like you see the person I really am. And so the rule I always give to parents, the way to really strengthen our connection with our kids is is two simple things. Number one, well, they sound simple. They're never really that simple. Number one, we have to love the kids we have and not the kids we wish we had. Because if we're just loving the kids we wish we had, our kids can never really be those kids. And there's always going to be stress in the relationship. And there's always going to be fear on our parts that they're somehow not fulfilling some ideal that we've cooked up for them. And number two, we can't just love them based on their performance because kids feel that as well. They know that what they're supposed to produce for us are these perfect grades. And when they don't, or these perfect jobs or these perfect appearances or these perfect goals in soccer, whatever that thing is. And when they don't uh, produce those things, they feel less loved. Remember when I said 80% of middle schoolers, 90% of middle schoolers tell me that they really believe their parents love them more when they do well in school or well in sports or whatever. And less when they don't. And we know we don't love them less, but we have to figure out how to show them that. And the way to do that is by focusing on the process and less on the product, less on those trophies, less on those grades, less on those scores, and more on that process of learning. You talk in your book, Jessica, about when you had to make that shift and how you parented, right? And you had a family meeting, sat down with your kids. If we're talking to parents of high school students right now who are listening to this and going, I don't know how to do this. If <laughs> I talk about my failures to a high school student, how do I, how do I model this? How do I show them? How do I change my parenting now? It seems like it's a lost cause. What would you say to them too? There are a couple of things that we did. Um, so I've had to do this a couple of times. I've had to sit down and talk to my kids about the gift of failure information that I was learning. I mean, think about it this way. What we want to model for our kids is that we do the best we can based on the information that we have. And if we get better information, we apologize, we reflect on that thing, and then we move forward with that better information. So I've had to do that with the stuff I learned when I was researching, spending a couple of years researching gift of failure, 
And then again, with the addiction inoculation, I mean, we've changed the way we parent our children around substances. And I've had to both times sit them down and say, look, I was doing the best I could and I learned some stuff and I think I can do better. Here's the information I learned and I think I can do better. And I told them, I think, you know, my focusing on your grades is undermining not only your autonomy, but your, um, your motivation. And so we're not going to be checking as much. Homework is now your thing to do. I'm going to communicate to your teachers that I won't be looking at the portal. Um, and for parents of little kids, you can look on this portal now at many schools and look at your kids' grades all the time. And that's really fostering some some troublesome um, problems with relationships, both with parents and teachers and kids and teachers and kids and parents. So I told them, we'll be doing this less. I told the teachers about that. And I said, look, I'm going to, here's the best way to communicate with me if things start to circle the drain and um, and be in touch. And we'll be checking in with each other on, an, on a need be basis. But pulling things out from under your kids without explaining the why is going to get you in trouble every time. So make sure you're explaining to them, I'm sorry, I've been underestimating your competence. I think you can do more. I think you're capable of more. And I have been the one who's been holding you back. And so from here on out, here's some more autonomy, but here are, the, here are our ground rules too. So here are my very clear expectations, the very clear consequences for what'll happen if you don't fulfill those expectations, but you're going to have a lot more autonomy around the how and the where and the why and the when that you do the things you need to do in order to meet those expectations. And believe me, I under, I outline it really clearly in gift of failure with all kinds of specifics. Yeah. And when you had those conversations with teachers, how did that go that you're no longer driving the homework or no longer checking the portal? Right. What was that response like? Well, as a teacher, you know, there are certain things I know, for example, I don't assign homework because I want it to come in and be frameable and perfect. I assign homework when I assign homework, I've also changed that over time, um, because I want to, I need information on where a student is. I'm looking for something called formative. I'm, I'm hopefully assigning what's called a formative assessment. I want to see where the kid is so that it forms my teaching going forward and it forms their learning going forward. Um, so I, if a parent has put a heavy hand into a paper and believe me, we know a paper, homework, whatever that thing is, that's not information about the student for me. That's a parent trying to make the homework be perfect because they believe everything has to be perfect all the time. So remember that, um, you know, when learning is a process for them and it's not a measure of our parenting. So remember that one of the things we need to do, as I said, is focus more on the process and less on the end product. Remember that you know, every assignment does not have to be perfect. In fact, I, as a teacher, would love it if I got an assignment back from a student who didn't understand something that literally said, I had to stop here because I didn't understand this particular aspect. May I come in and get some extra help after school or during lunch or whatever? That is far more valuable to me as a teacher than a perfect homework assignment for a kid who doesn't actually know what they're doing. I would always prefer more information um, about what a kid can't do than false information about what a kid would like to pretend they can do. That is great advice. Thank you. <laughs> um, this is a well-being series. So my last question for you as a parent is, what is a well-being practice that you turn to? What helps you as a parent in times of stress or frustration? Well, I alluded to it before, but um, when I finished, when I closed out my column at the New York Times, um, I, the one thing I knew I wanted to leave parents with was that this parenting thing 
is a long haul job. It is not measured in the everyday little emergencies, this homework assignment, those cleats being forgotten. All of these things are learning opportunities, but sort of the parenting, parents need to have more long haul view of parenting. Where do we want our kid to be in six months? Do I want my kid to do this quickly and perfectly now with my interference? Or do I want a kid who can do this himself or herself next time? And one of the coolest things I can tell you is that by having this more long-term view, it sort of allows me to breathe a little bit and not stress so much over those everyday emergencies. It also allows me to see the progress when I, you know, I'm sort of trying to get in the habit of thinking about, you know, recently my kid did something without being asked and I realized, oh my gosh, this is the first time my kid did that particular thing without being asked. And it's been six years of me trying to get to this point. And this is a big moment. And I thanked him from the bottom of my heart and said, you know, this really means a lot to me because this is about progress. This is about you, you know, planning ahead and thinking ahead. And that's a really big deal. Um, as your brain grows, that's one of the things that sort of comes online. So Long-term thinking instead over short-term thinking is, is sort of the way I have to be every single day. And it's really hard to remember, but helps me be more sane. That's great advice. Thanks, Jessica. Well, you're welcome. This conversation was so illuminating. I really appreciate you and your time. And I'm sure the parents of our Be Well community are feeling very supported right now. Um, so a big thank you to you, Jessica, and everyone who joined the call. Remember, be happy, be healthy, and be well. Bye, everybody. Thank you. That was Jessica Leahy, New York Times bestselling author, speaker, parenting expert, and creator of the award-winning animated series, The Stinky and Dirty Show. She spoke with Stephanie Adams, director of customer success for the nonprofit team on our Be Well Together podcast. Be sure to check out more episodes of Be Well Together by going to Salesforce Plus. That's salesforce.com slash plus, B-L-U-S. Thanks for listening today. I'm Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. 